This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. For a 14-day free trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Hey Andy. How's everything? It's pretty good. It's alright. Let's just jump straight into introducing our guest, because... He's a great guest. He's a great yes. person. He's a very funny comedian. He's also a podcaster and now a, and a writer as well, because he now has a new book out called The History of Stand-Up from Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle. Uh, this is Mr. Wayne Fetterman. Hey, Wayne. Thank you. You nailed that perfectly. That is, that is correct. <laughs> Thank you. you. That was almost NPR-worthy intro. <laughs> but it was Mr. Wayne Fetterman. I think you needed a little more elitist tone, but otherwise yeah. you're close. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about the book for a second. <laughs> there you go. There you go. How, how are you, Wayne? I'm swell. I'm swell. Thank you for asking. I am um, very excited to be here with oh, Probably right. Science. I like the way you sort of hedge your bets on the name of the show. Oh, it's, ve- it's very intentional. <laughs> it's very we really good. did. We lucked out with the branding ten, nine years ago, I guess it was, because, uh, yeah, we, we have no obligation to anyone with that title. <laughs> yeah. to, to, right, to facts. <laughs> to uh, double-blind yeah, testing, any of the things that other science deals with. Yeah. We, oh, we no, were... we do have a control podcast that runs at all times, oh, yeah. and we compare our results to it. I love it. Uh, well, yeah, anyway, we, I'm thrilled to be here. Let's do it. Yes, indeed. By the way, can I just say longtime fan um, from all the way back? I think the first time I saw you live was at one of the UCB or one of the Comedy Death Ray all-nighters in probably 2005. Oh, yes, I do remember that. Comedy and... Death Ray, yes. You and Brendan Small doing... Um, That's pre-Comedy Bang Bang, right? Yeah. I guess they renamed it, right? After making rebranded, it podcast. Rebranded, yeah. You and Brendan were doing the two-man musical mm-hmm. act. I forgot what the, What was that called? Was there a name for it? I don't know it? if we had a name for that act, but we had something we had put together, and we did like a medley of songs, because he's a ridiculously talented musician, and I'm okay. As are, as are you. Come on. No, no, no. Not on his... No. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that guy, but he is really an incredible musician. So I'm good, but not like that. Yeah. On, on ukulele and keys, and uh, what yeah. else do you play? I uh, play drums as well. Damn. Yeah, and bass guitar. And get, Okay, now it's too much. Now, now you have to <laughs> no, stop. but it's, it's, believe me, once you, it's all the same, really, once you kind of quarter of notes, eighth notes, dotted eighth notes. There's a lot to it. I guess it is. It is kind of probably science a little bit. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am now a, well, guitarist first, but then when you pick up ukulele after knowing guitar, it does, you could find some pretty quick shortcuts that make it uh, yeah. an easier ride, certainly. Yeah. I'm actually, I don't want to brag, but I'm sort of a <laughs> ukulele innovator in the, back in the 80s, maybe, maybe when you were a kid or before you were born, uh, they... I electrified my ukulele and was one of the first to do that. And that was my kind like, of my big closer. I would play Jimi Hendrix. Like and, electrified it as a prank? No, it wasn't. <laughs> exactly. It was like you shake hands with the electric <laughs> ukulele. And uh, no, I uh, was able to take the. All right, Matt. Um, <laughs> I see what's going on here. So, yes, I was able to take the signal and put it into a Marshall amplifier and then play some heavy metal stuff. 
Oh, nice. I'm actually staring at an electric uke now. So maybe you were the innovator behind yes. the one that I'm not. And I've actually at. performed at international pod, I mean, excuse me, international ukulele festivals, including <laughs> one in England. Matt, you might be familiar with that little country. Oh. I've heard of it. Yeah. I've I've been watching some Netflix shows from there. Yeah. <laughs> it's very popular. Where, where in England was this festival? It was in I'm gonna mispronounce it. Chattenham? Chat Chettleham? Chettleham? Something uh, like Chel- that. Cheltenham? That's it. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting me hang out there for a little bit, even though I'm sure you knew right away what I was no, talking I, about. No, it took me a second. <laughs> I was... So many hams there's also and like, shires. There's Chesham. And... There's a... No, it wasn't. There's it was Caterham. Pretty... It could... There's a few things it could have okay, been. Okay, all right. Well, anyway, it was a blast. And then I spent a few days in London. I did stand-up there, and I love Great Britain. I like also that you brand it as great. It's that, right in the name. Yeah. And it's, yeah, we, what's interesting is when I spoke to a lot of your British citizens, they're all about not being brash and not being, what's the word for it, like a bombastic about themselves. So it's yeah. interesting that Great Britain is in the name because they told me about that they kind of look down on people that are like do the American, like, look at me. They, they like, do and they don't. And they also, don't? And, yeah. and also Britain... Like, well, really, it's almost competitive self-deprecation. Right, 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 yeah. And I guess well, yeah. you have to, like, overly self-deprecate yeah, yeah, yeah. to prove how great you are. Yep. So you brand it as great, and then you're actually super humble. Kind of like, we call ourselves united, and then we're just completely a mess and divided. It's yeah. whatever you, yeah, this is the opposite branding of whatever your country is. <laughs> well, it's the opposite branding. I love yeah. it. That's our next podcast. Probably opposite country Probably branding. Probably opposite branding. So cool. what 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 do we need to talk about? Today? What do we, <laughs> well, why am I here? <laughs> well, before we get into the stories, we, we like to ask our guests always, what, if anything, is your background in science? And that has ranged from classes you liked or hated at school to blowing stuff up in the woods with your friends to I did a full doctorate in oh, organic wow. chemistry. Okay, so. this, is, this is my connection to science. I would say I'm relatively interested in science, mm-hmm. was very good at it. I took... Uh, Besides, I was a bit of a pyro. I don't know if I was quite a maniac, but I was certainly an enthusiast as a young child. Like yep. I was fascinated by fire. Maybe could have accidentally burned things down. I didn't, <laughs> but like I was that. In, I was into it. Like right. this is incredible. And yeah. then I took a class in ninth grade. I went to school in Florida, so that's where I went to high school. In a place, unfortunately, the most maybe racially insensitive name for a city. It's called Plantation, Florida. That's where I'm from. <laughs> That's the, I wish I was making it up. So, and to make it worse, I'm from like the less progressive part. I'm from South Plantation High. That was the name of the school. I'm from the south part of a place called Plantation. Yeah. Anyway, ninth grade, I'll never forget it. Introductory to physical science. Are you familiar with this class? Something along its lines. I'm sure we, we've all. I know, but I can guess vaguely of what it is. Yes, yeah, so I took that class, and then I took biology, and then I took chemistry, and that was it. <laughs> Those are the three <laughs> science classes I took, and they're the did three ra- biggies. Did rather well in all of them. Learned about the Bunsen burner. Learned about sure. a graduated cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> learned about you know testing your results and then giving it to somebody else. So they you know blind testing and uh, yeah, and I would say. Also, at that time, and this is not funny, but I also 
join the forensics teams, which sounds like I'm oh. dusting for fingerprints, but it's not. What is it's, it? Forensics was speech and debate. They called it forensics back there. I have no idea. Somebody can, one of your listeners can tell me why they call it that. Yeah. And yeah, I, wonder so, it, I wonder if it did just come from, well, what is the art? Because the word forensics meaning things like DNA testing and fi- in fingerprint dusting, that's probably a fairly modern usage of a word that's been around for a while. So maybe... Mm-hmm. I, again, I like this. This is probably language right now. We're, yeah, well, the, but I'm no one knows. The, the etymology, it's from the Latin forensis, meaning in open court or public. Okay. So both of those things are, I guess, you're, you're publicly investigating the crime scene or doing so in court. Um, right. And then, of course, debate is, an, is a forum. Right. So debate was a real eye-opener for me because we would have to argue pro and con on the same subject okay mm-hmm. so it was the same logical um technique you would use could be applied for debate that you could for science so i okay. really enjoyed that and uh, did you see any like structural similarities between constructing an argument and constructing a joke yes. is that part of how you got a oh. comedy no because i think i mean there is a little bit of it but i think hopefully until Computer 107 or, uh, you know, uh, Big Blue 191 becomes a stand-up comic and writes <laughs> the best jokes in the world by, science, you know, <laughs> do using a formula. Uh, I think there is sort of a magical artistic version. Maybe Matt can jump in on this to kind of joke writing and just this sort of, you know, because it's usually two different ideas that you're able to draw a connection to, and then mm-hmm. boom, oh, a little explosion, and I, that's a joke. I think right? it's a bit of both, but uh, but also I think I think people who are doing science or mathematics at the highest levels are also exercising comics, some of those. Though. Well, they're also exercising some of those same skill sets where where they're looking for those sort of flashes of inspiration and they're turning ideas around into their head until lightning strikes yeah. actually you know andy i'm gonna step back and i'm gonna agree with matt on that because oh. i remember when the simpsons started they hired some harvard and mit math guys to write their jokes oh yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's a, whole a book crossover. about that yeah there's a book about all this all the math uh okay math jokes and math the math like um right. origins of futurama and the simpsons well yes. we should also um while we're talking about books about comedy uh, I, I want to. You were talking briefly back before we recorded about. So your your book and also your podcast is about the history of comedy. You're a big enthusiast. Uh, sorry, Specific- history specifically stand up. Um, and it, you were talking Matt. before we recorded about <laughs> technology involved. Yes, huge and how part that's- of it, and it continues today. Not yesterday. Today it's going on. Like, where is comedy going? Is it online? Is it going to be these Zoom sessions? Is right. it going to be on Twitch? Is it going to be all streamed? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? All I mean, that is as current a debate as you can have. And then, of course, it goes back to the 1800s when they started recording comedians. Right. I also feel like the invention of the microphone must have been a big difference. Because yes, would you're talking drastically about the, sta- the stage microphone. Yes. No that would question. Drastically good, change Matt. how you can perform. Right. I mean, like you can. There's so many more sort of nuanced things you can do with your voice when you don't have to project to the back of a theater. A hundred percent. You could have written this book. I don't know why I'm not <laughs> interviewing you right now. That's absolutely correct. Like in the right hands, it's almost like a musical instrument 
that really can enhance a comedian's intimacy. It just adds an amazing amount of intimacy with the crowd. So for the first time, a comedian could be loud while speaking softly. Right. How um, about that? That's out of the book. That's a direct uh, quote out of the book. So that's the you, kind of stuff you'll be getting if you buy <laughs> <laughs> Microphones <laughs> make the human weird. voice louder. <laughs> Microphone, even though if you're speaking softly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that is a real thing. Like, what, what, It takes a while as a new comic to learn mic technique and to learn how to sort of, how yeah. to move the mic closer and further away from you, depending on what you want to do and how you can... Right how you can move the mic away to shout and then move it closer to whisper and keep the... Of course, keep the same level. It's like you're a human compressor. I've, I've told the, this story before on the podcast, but... Oh, Jesus. I know. <laughs> All right, let's hear it again. <laughs> but uh, some years back in Canada, I was doing these shows. It was me and Alonzo Bowden. It was a sort of corporate show. So we were in this hotel ballroom that had been converted into a comedy club, which is always pretty sterile. And the whole way through my set, I couldn't work. The volume, I just couldn't control the volume of the mic. It was the weirdest thing. It, like, it kept cutting out. I was wondering if there was a limiter on the mic where mm-hmm. if I went too loud, suddenly it went really quiet. Um, and it was, it was just, it was really disconcerting, completely threw me. And then I, and then Alonzo went on after me and I was, I went over to talk to the sound guy and I watched what he was doing and asked him about it. And he, he was watching me like a hawk. And every time I moved the mic anywhere away from my mouth, he turned the volume he right up, oh, was... and every time I moved it closer, he moved it down again. So he was doing what I was doing with my voice, but also I was doing that with my voice, so I just couldn't... So every time I moved it away to sort of be louder, suddenly it would get even louder. <laughs> I'm yeah, moving... That's a terrible sound guy. It, it was baffling. I, I, kind terrible... of, I kind of understand if he normally does conferences where someone who doesn't know how to use a microphone... But yeah. it was it was so confusing. No, there's de- it's Matt. Like, this is a great non kind of science. Well, maybe it is a little science. Tiny yeah. bit of science. Uh, let's say hopefully science. That's, yeah. new, that's your new podcast. And yeah, that uh, yeah, that it is definitely in a comedian's tool book. Excuse me, toolbox to be able to use a microphone effectively. Yeah, that, and there's that- also something, and Andy may know this called proximity effect are you familiar with that um let's pretend that i'm not okay why (laughs) why would you say that (laughs) no i'm not sure exactly what you mean by that i could make guesses but i'd rather hear proximity because it's not only when you get your voice closer to the wow we are really deep diving here it's not only when you get your voice closer to the microphone that it gets louder it also adds more low end i will demonstrate right now as i get closer to the microphone you can hear even though i'm speaking that it has a different mm-hmm. uh, EQ on it. It has a different, yeah, range. Right, so, yeah. Your voice so is it, more rounded and basic yeah, the closer you yes, get. Yeah, so it's, yeah, that's called the proximity effect. I guess I didn't, I, I thought you were going to talk about a psychological phenomenon of audiences responding to a joke better if they're know. close to the... <laughs> oh, I no. see. I, uh, but, but that was, it was, so, it, it was almost like trying to drive a car without realizing that someone had somehow connected the wheel up so that it goes the opposite way to the steering wheel. <laughs> like, it was oh, just... Yeah, like no, 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 that was yeah. stupid. That guy was stupid. That guy yeah. was stupid. What did you, you said it was in Canada, right? It was in Canada. It was in yeah, northern okay. Ontario. Okay. I think it was uh, either Thunder Bay or North Bay, Ontario. I don't remember which town. Let's blame okay. Canada for that. Yeah, let's... But, so, Wayne, you, you consider Mark Twain a pre-microphone comedian, I'm assuming, yes. um, to, to be a stand-up comic? 
in, yes, in I the do. Tr- yes, traditional I do. sense? Did he perform? Did he orate? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I I, actually, there's a thing. guy that's right before Mark Twain named Artemis Ward, who Mark Twain saw perform and was uh, mouth was agape. Like, oh, he wrote about this guy quite a bit. And Artemis Ward, some historians call him the first stand up, even though I, there's people kind of doing stand up comedy. But he there was something called the Lyceum Circuit in the mid 1800s. And this was. Theaters would book a person, and they would talk about biology. They would talk about Greek literature. They would talk about American history. They would talk. It was basically like a TED talk, okay, or a, you know, like a master class. And so this is before there was, you know, so we had a growing middle class in this country, and people wanted to get educated. So there was this whole circuit, and he. Because he had written these, he had a reputation as a funny writer, created this character called Artemis Ward. His real name, believe it or not, is Charles Brown. Yeah, Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. And anyway, Artemis Ward, he would go up on stage and talk about anything but the topic of the lecture. (laughs) <laughs> so it was uh, a total misdirect the whole time and people were rolling and and he could charge a dollar a person and became famous for these Armus war tours that went all across the United States and that, that's he a could, proper comedy bit like to, it's yeah. a, yes yes Thank I mean you. that's yeah that's exactly you would happily see that a UCB show today or whatever just sort of someone advertising a serious talk on an issue and then never getting to the topic of course yeah yeah that was his whole that was his whole, it was all a misdirect right yeah. so it was uh yeah so that's how he uh that's how he it kind of started and this is before vaudeville or any of that stuff right, right. and then he uh, and then mark twain saw him now twain was already a funny after dinner speaker but he was like oh I can make money doing this. And Twain, I don't know if you know what happened. He lost a lot of money trying to become, trying to self-publish his own books. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he created his own, yeah, because he thought the publishers were ripping him off. And so he decided, I'll do this myself, and then ended up losing all his money. So he needed money. Mm -hmm. So he started touring, and it was a huge sensation. And let me just... Let me just say, not only in the United States, he would do these lecture, these funny talks, England, Australia, Italy, Germany, New Zealand, South Africa, Austria, wow, India, Hungary. I mean, insane. And I also, in the book, I list just like his December 1869 tour dates and where he worked. This, this was in, he was in the United States for this. Uh-huh. So it's like the Brooklyn Library Society on the 1st. The, an opera house in Poughkeepsie on the third, <laughs> uh, the, a church on the sixth, the Academy of Music on the seventh, like the whole thing. So he was touring, making a lot of bank, and and obviously once a year we give the Mark Twain Prize to like the chief comedian in the United States, right? And a lot of stand-ups have received it. So he still is like sort of in the zeitgeist a little bit more than just Huck Finn. Yeah, I guess I because the when I think of him performing live, I just think of Hal Holbrook, and then I assume that that was not a recreation of a thing he did, and that he was just a writer. But I, I forget, or maybe never knew, that he was 
such yeah. a such so known for live performance. Yes, yeah, yeah, incredibly. And can I just circle back a little to Artemis? I know you guys don't yeah. care about him as much. No, it's as very Mark interesting. Twain, but uh, Artemis goes to England, right? And he there's a place called the Egyptian Hall in the Piccadilly, and he he's selling out there, and gets tuberculosis and dies. Oh, uh, that's it. As, Never as one did. Yeah, yeah. That's thank you, Matt. Thanks for that. I oh guess man, I'm sorry. Is it from? Is it? Is, I guess there's it's like kind of damp over there. I'm not sure. Artemis could on. still be going today if we hadn't if he hadn't visited London. <laughs> we hadn't finished him off. So uh, so that's so that's how I kind of start the book, and then I mention a couple other guys pre vaudeville, and one of his who actually went into vaudeville a little bit, Will Rogers and a guy named Burt Williams, and then we go from there. So mm-hmm. I connect what Patton Oswald or uh, Ali Wong is doing to what those guys were doing back then. Is the is basically the theme of my book. That's nice. Incredible. Um, well, oh, no, I was going to say, well, <laughs> while we're talking about English stuff, and... Yeah. And By the think- way, this is mainly American. This is mainly... So don't, don't get upset, Matt. I, that's okay. Like, you know... The goons and none of that stuff is in here. Uh, shame on you. Shame on you. I know, I know. Well, just well too much stand up is very much like stand up comedy in its purest sense is, I still do think, is, is at its heart an American art form. Like Britain had the musical scene and the that sort of group, that right. sort of uh, family tree of comedy, and, and also then people coming through, like from the goons to the uh, from the crazy gang to the goons to the pythons and so on. Mm-hmm. But but I think stand-up, like pure just one person talking into a microphone, talking into an audience, like that, that is or an not talk, Or not even talking into a microphone. Just one person on stage trying to get laughs. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No question. Because I know there was like Dan Leno, I think, was in, in Britain was the first patter comedian. Oh, the first okay. yeah. music hall act who didn't do songs and just spoke. That's awesome. What year was that? I'm just. I, I'm sorry, Andy. We're we're no. in a tangent. <laughs> Nothing it. to do with science at this point. Uh, I'm looking it up now. Here you don't have to. Okay, if it's not off the top of your head, he was 1860 to 1904 were his oh. the years he was alive. Okay, I'm okay. sure he didn't perform for the first 15 to 20 years of that. So probably late 18 or through the 1880s to the early mm-hmm. 1900s. Interesting. Yeah. So. so uh, yeah, keep going. What? Speaking. Any other questions? <laughs> well, well let, let's get into not a, yeah. so great Britain. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into a story. Just a broad sent in this one. So, you know, it it turns out one of our proudest things in the English section of Great Britain might have been Nick from Wales, or at least shifted from Wales. So Stonehenge, yes. uh, according to a new finding, was probably erected in Wales first and then Ugh. moved. Oh no. When is the, how do they know that? Like, well, how does that even... Well, let's Science. find out. So, around, around 3200 BCE, uh, Stone Age farmers in Wales's Preseli Hills built a great monument. They carved columns of unspotted dolerite or bluestone from a nearby quarry and mm-hmm. thrust them upright in a great circle aligned with the sun. Exactly what the circle meant to them remains a mystery, but new research reveals that several centuries later... Their descendants took down many of the giant stones and hauled them 200 kilometers, that's what, about 140 miles, to the Salisbury Plain, where they created what's still the world's most iconic prehistoric stone monument, Stonehenge. That's amazing. So this new paper's authors make, quote, a very good argument that Stonehenge is a dismantled stone circle from Wales, says Alison Sheridan, a curator 
emerita at the National Museum of Scotland, who's not part of the study. Addison said they dealt with very tricky data that came up with a brilliant hypothesis. So, so researchers had already traced Stonehenge's slabs of bluestone to the west coast of Wales. They'd even identified some of the quarries where the stones were extracted more than 5,000 years ago. But radiocarbon dating showed a puzzling gap of several centuries between activity at the bluestone quarries and the oh. earliest construction of Stonehenge. Oh, I see. Right? Researchers mm-hmm. wondered whether the distinctive two to three meter tall bluestones had been used to build other stone circles first and then move to Stonehenge later. They're clearly not spending 200 years slowly moving them across the landscape, says the University of Southampton archaeologist Joshua Pollard, who's one of the co-authors. It always sure. seemed likely they were dismantling existing monuments. Wow. So, so it's about carbon dating is the science, right? Yeah, and, and filling in the gap. So, so these researchers, they're led by University College London archaeologist Michael Parker Pearson. They search for ritual structures in the Priscelli region that might have provided the stones and the blueprint for Stonehenge. And then over the last couple of years, 2017 and 2018, they ex- excavated parts of an ancient monument called Wound Morn. <laughs> Wound Morn. W-A-U-N-M-A-W-N. Where a handful of toppled bluestones similar to those at Stonehenge form a partial circle. The excavations reveal distinctive socket-shaped pits where other stones had once stood. Oh, uh, mm. look at that. Connecting the dots between the empty sockets and the toppled blue stones at Wait, one more. they still exist, the sockets that they took yeah, the stones from? Apparently, yeah. That doesn't... Does that sound credible to you? <laughs> That's heavy heavy rock. I don't know. Yeah, I could see if someone hadn't built over that land that that could have remained intact or at least... With through rain, through weather, through anything, it would be like, oh, and this is where they stole that rock from. It's still, <laughs> you can still see the divots. After 5,000 years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, Christ comes along, there's other thing, (laughs) there's the Crusades. A lot happens, but still somehow the little divot over here remained, and you feel like that's credible. Yeah, and we can also see that this place is where a sofa once was because it's faded more around the outline of it. (laughs) I mean, I can understand it was 30 years, maybe even even 100 years, but that there was a divot in the ground. All right. All right, I'm a little skeptical, which is what yep. is supposedly the backbone of good science. That's true. It That's is. true. <laughs> so, so the researcher sketched, sketched out a circle 110 meters across, which is the same dimensions as the outer earthen ditch that was part of Stonehenge's original layout. Right. Apparently, the ritual center was rearranged multiple times over its thousand-year lifespan. I didn't oh. know that either. I thought it was just in one place. Yeah. And like at Stonehenge, the circle's entrance was oriented towards sunrise on the midsummer solstice. So the team then measured the last time sediments inside the socket holes, here we go, had been exposed to light using... So, okay, so there are sediments. So basically, like, it looks different to the rest of the soil around it. Um, Look, it's possible. It's possible. (laughs) And it's probably what happened. It's it's probably what happened. To be able to prove that just based on... All right, maybe. I mean, I'd like to talk to a geologist about that. Right, right. We can. We've probably got some geologists listening to this. Can you get a geologist? Yeah, send me. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, find Wayne Fetterman. And... I'm at Fetterman. Oh, you're at Fetterman without the Wayne bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They they also radiocarbon dated charcoal found inside the pits. Okay, they use something called ocu- optically stimulated luminescence to see what had been exposed to light. And they estimated that the missing stones were erected between 3400 and 3200 BCE, and then removed 300 or 400 years later, around the same time that the first construction at Stonehenge began. 
Right. We're yeah, quite confident. Yeah, the the timings match up. We're quite confident the reasons they came down is that they've gone to Stonehenge. I mean, they're working within a time frames of hundreds of years, so it's not quite like. So hang wait, on, so on Tuesday is... it was gone, and then on Thursday it was Stonehenge was built. But... Right. So just so I'm clear about this, this is like over three thousand years before Christ shows up, right? So... Yes. And yeah, then so we've good, had another like five thousand plus years ago. Yeah, and then we've had another 2,021 years since he came along, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so that's a, that's a good hunk of time. Yeah, so we're talking a good sort of somewhere between like 5,500, just under 5,500 years ago is when it was built in Wales. And then around 5,000 years ago was when it disappeared from Wales and reappeared in uh, the southwest of England. Right. Which is, you said 200 kilometers? approximately that yeah well it kind of i mean i don't know i don't know if it makes sense but they're just saying that kind of stone wasn't in england at that time is that basically it or no just that they figured out where they and then the and then was. they figured out where there was stone like that and it wasn't that far away it was a couple hundred miles away right thereabouts or well, i'm also, sure I was slightly a- wrong with the conversion it's about 125 miles oh it's only 125 okay. miles well, and that, how do you think is there are there horse-drawn carrot? Like, how would they get 125 miles? Like, I'm not familiar with what was going on 3,000 years before. I only, I'm just familiar with Christ's life and on. That's it. That's where I start history at zero. Okay. I don't do the minus years. I don't do the minus years. I think I think there's, like, a lot of debate about that and also about, you know, creating, building the pyramids and about moving the statues at easter island i don't know if stonehenge is as as yeah i think debated as far as how the movement happened but i've seen we had a story years ago where someone had how heavy are those that i mean heavy (laughs) okay yeah no i was looking more for a number than just (laughs) how here we go how 25 tons is the average stone in stonehenge 25 tons each about okay and a ton is two thousand pounds if i'm not mistaken that's yes we're talking about uh fifty thousand pounds per stone on the on the average <laughs> moving 125 miles yeah yeah so it says in this article um <laughs> researchers say the dismantling of one mon at morn and the rise of stonehenge could have been part of a larger migration from the Paselli hills to the salisbury plain keyword could Keep yep going human and animal re- remains found at stonehenge have chemical signatures suggesting their early years were spent on the welsh coast We've got regular contact between the two regions. I like the idea that they're migrating to the south uh, west of England, and they're like, well, we've got to take our stones. Yeah. Right, <laughs> that's right, the, right, right. That's right. the one right. thing we've we got remember, to pack. We have, right, we'll take grandma, the that, you know, grandma's old nighty, because I remember her from that, yeah. and uh, some great memories. We remember, have... <laughs> remember to take at least one change of clothes in your carry bag. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they'll wow. pack the rest. And it then... just, that's, that's the part of it to me, and again... I'm a stand-up comedian. I don't know what I'm talking about, but that seems a little. I don't. I would like to hear from someone who knew what transportation, the, the methods of transportation around that time, five thousand over five thousand years ago, was that the. And is it hilly there, Matt? You're from that, that uh, hood. I mean, I they would have to go over some like, hills. Say it again. They'd have to go over some hills for sure. Although That's the what south I of Wales That's is not. It's not quite as... But no, there, there are definitely... There are some hills, for sure. Yeah, don't they have fox hunts over there and that kind of stuff? Okay. All right. It's, well, it I, just I, seems to me like it, 
look, it sounds like this, the science part of it lines up. Like there were no rocks in this region at that time. They were there. This also lines up with there's some old divots we found back in Wales. It also lines up that like, oh, there was some animals that were part of Wales that now their bones are sort of over here. So maybe there was a migration situation going on. I, I like just don't know how you could possibly move those. Well, here we go. Oh, I was yeah. just Googling it here. Yeah. There's an article from Science Alert. And I, I think there's been a few stories about Stonehenge stones being moved over the years that we've covered yeah. on the show, but I don't know if there's ever been any kind of real consensus. But this article on sciencealert.com says, turns out building Stonehenge probably wasn't that hard, experiment finds. Oh. So, hang on, I'll put it there. Yeah, I think someone tried to basically do it. So... Barney Harris, who's a researcher from University College London, same university as this research, hoped to answer with a recent experiment that was set out to see how many people it would take to move one of the 25-ton stones into position. Right. So they rounded up volunteers to move a stone that weighed roughly one ton, which is about half the size of the smallest stone. At first, Harris thought it would take about 15 people to move the stone and about 50 to actually lift it. Surprisingly, only 10 people were needed to move it about 10, 10 feet every five seconds that's three meters every five seconds which rounds out to about one mile an hour which is not but But i feel like not 25 so yeah exactly thank you andy (laughs) i think there's a big difference between those two yeah 25 difference of being able to yes besides specifically 25 times and also the ability to walk one mile an hour with that stone on your back Okay, so the method they use. First of all, how could you even carry? Let me hear. So, it. Let me so hear here's the what they do. They don't. They don't. Um, they don't there's now no I'm picking upset. it up. It's sliding, and what they they built a sledge system oh. that works by placing logs on the ground. That makes pulling, sense. Pulling that makes the stone. Sense. Okay. And the the stone also has logs attached to the bottom, so it's kind of like. Uh, I got it. Your slide, yeah. like a slip and slide. Yeah. Exactly, or like those rollers at the uh, baggage carousel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or a, or the X-ray machine. So now he's try- they're trying to figure out how many people would have been needed in total to move all the big stones from Wales to its current site. So one mile, one mile an hour on average, if that's what they're doing for the small stones. And the, what it was, that's the one ton stone. That's not true. Not the 25 ton stone. But that's also with only 10 people for the stone. So and let's also, say you get are 50 they talking people. about, I, I'm, to tell you the truth, the key variable to me is the topography like the the hills right right because then once you start moving up a few degrees the weight of the stone becomes much more because you're dealing with something called gravity (laughs) so much science in this episode i know guys i'm into science i'm into it but also now i'm working at like okay so 125 i could see if it was all that i could see if it was at the top of a mountain and then they were like, let's get it to the bottom of the mountain. I could see that. <laughs> that's one of the easier. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the easier uh, workarounds. By the way, yeah. I just linked to, and we'll put this in the show notes, a video showing some modern day scientists trying to recreate a method that might have been used for the Easter Island statues, which is pretty ingenious. If you want to click on that. Where right. They have ropes attached to it and they just wobble it back and forth. So it sort of walks on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, done that. I've done that with like a big box or something. Yeah. 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 And yeah. they've also... Yeah, I've done that with a couch as well. You know, if I'm yeah, trying to move yeah, it by yourself, can. you just move like one corner at a time yep. and it pivots on the other. Um, <laughs> we, know, we know that... This is the weirdest podcast. Of- <laughs> <laughs> we, it's we- hands down. I'm loving it. Keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, by the end of this podcast, we're going to know how to make a Stonehenge. So, uh, <laughs> or move your couch without <laughs> having to call somebody. With greater ease. <laughs> so these, 
Y-shaped sleighs have been found dating back to 2000 BC in Japan, which we know were used to move megaliths, it says in this article. Okay, And so in India, they still use these sledges. Uh, in pr- they use these sledges in pre-industrial st- industrialized societies like the Maram Nega in India to construct huge stone monuments. They still use that kind of sledge. What society was? Maram Naga. And what, uh, how do they describe them? It says pre-industrialized society. The pre-industrialized. But is that, but is that okay. today? It said I like so. using it today. Yeah, I think there's some still pre-industrialized societies in India. That, okay. I, I hate to say in India, but I have to. <laughs> All right, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> well, so just to finish off the original story, <laughs> it says, so the results... Um, Add to an emerging picture of the Stonehenge's origins in a complex interconnected region centered on the Irish Sea that flourished in the 4th millennium BCE. People and ideas and objects were moving over long distances and the movement clearly had to do with the way society expressed power, says Sheridan. Uprooting stones is a classic example. And then back in the Priscelli Hills region, radiocarbon dates and pollen evidence suggest that millennia of farming and human occupation ended around the time that the one mound circle was dismantled. Evidence for human activity drops around 3400 BCE. The researchers aren't sure why the people left. So that Cause it's, they, it's cuz it's Wales. So yeah. reg, regional dig there Wales. And then here is pure pure speculation. I guess educated guess. The researchers suggest that the migrants from Wales may have relocated the stones as a way to stay symbolically connected to their past. Oh. Or to draw on their ancestors' authority to claim a new region. All right. Parker Pearson says they're bringing ancestral symbols as an act of unification. I that's, feel like how this... you col- that's how you colonize people right there. <laughs> Bring the old fort from your old country. You slide it on wood across the, across the, the marsh and the hills. And next thing you know, this is where we're from. I wonder if they were, this has to be a religious aspect to that, right? If they did that much effort to it. You'd that think be, I would think it would have to be for the gods. You would just think, especially if they like you know, to bring them good luck. They're like, "Hey, we're over in Britain now. Maybe we can sell some flowers on the corner. Maybe we can." Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm guessing back then there is a, everything's Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> well, there probably also wouldn't be. I, I don't think they delineate between sort of religion and ritual and just everyday life. Oh, you're probably, yeah. Yeah, I'm not an expert on that. But I would think there was something other than, this doesn't seem like Stonehenge was put up for shelter. Right, that's definitely not the case. Yeah, I think it was for like a higher, like, hey, we need crops to grow or something. Isn't it pretty pretty clear that it has celestial... Origins, even if we don't know the exact, I mean, oh, not, not, mean not the origins, sunset. but like, yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, which I'm sure is, was involved in whatever early religious what? practices they had, yeah, or just, yeah, or just growing crops, or maybe gathering, yeah, just well. So, once you have it, I've done that where I've moved and I brought something with me only because I had it, even though I, if I thought about it, I didn't even like that thing, but it, it just has to come with the move, right? Was like it this, 25 tons? It was no, but it was a cumbersome head. Like when I moved into the weird house in the valley where we used to record the podcast, I don't, Matt, I don't know if you remember that uh, mirrored headboard that was in the house. There. Oh, I remember it. <laughs> okay, guys, yeah. we don't have to yes. go down memory lane here. This sure. is un- uncomfortable <laughs> that he's familiar with your bedroom furniture. It was you could see it from the backyard where we would. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we recorded in there sometimes as well. <laughs> We actually did. I forgot yeah. with Peter McGraw. Not I for the podcast, but, you know, just... Just, just yeah, the yeah. general. Just recorded things. stuff in there. 
If I moved and I brought that with me, even though once I've moved it with me, I no longer have the excuse where I can be like, oh, it was, it was here. I'm not the weirdo who puts a mirrored headboard into a bedroom. It's like, well, once, you, once you've moved it with you, then now it's, it <laughs> now it's a choice. You. Yeah. Have you ever read a book called Sapiens? Oh, no, I've heard great things about it. That's definitely one I've meant to. Yeah, that's it. that's fan? my recommend. That's my recommend. And if I re- if I could retain what he wrote in that amazing book, this would help that conversation. Yeah. But he was very good at like, okay, and this is when they started farming together, and this is when they started humans started cooperating and using money, and then this mirrored headboards. Then, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then got to mirror headboards and uh, shore microphones. They did the whole <laughs> brief history of human of humans. I think is how he says it. Man, this Stonehenge thing is a conundrum, huh? Yeah, God, they had to work it all out with just, I don't know, just work it out themselves. 5,000 years ago. God, with very little access to knowledge on tap from hundreds, nay, thousands of lectures taught by top lecturers in their field across just about every subject. It sounds like there's a service that these ancient Welsh uh, stonecutters might have been able to use if they were alive today. Yeah, and you know they could have used either their Apple TV or their phone or or their computer. You know they could have watched this on any of their interfaces available to them. They could have watched it while they were driving with the stones across the country, right? Yeah, <laughs> or listen to it. That is the Great Courses Plus, our sponsor, and I I don't think there is a course that specifically tells you how to make a henge, but there will definitely the How to Stonehenge course. You didn't <laughs> yes. see that. But there are definitely courses that will cover the various the physics and science principles involved in it, and also the history of uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. But yeah, we, we've got um, right now we're listening to the Joy of Science, which is basically covering every science subject ever in a very large lecture, lecture course. So definitely, it's covering some of the physics principles, the Newtonian physics principles, some of the geology involved. It's got everything, and th- yeah. this. Yeah, this course is taught by Dr. Robert Hazen as well, who has a master's in geology from MIT and his PhD from Harvard I've and postdoctoral work at Cambridge. Like, he's hit Whoa. all the big places. Yeah, that's a pretty esteemed, as, as all the lecturers are very highly trained and highly capable as lecturers, which is why they're selected. Um, so if you want to learn about, I mean, as we've said, you can't say literally any subject, but most of the time when we've thought of something obscure and then searched in the Great Courses Plus library, we've found something yeah, on that subject. I've just so. found a Tai Chi course. <laughs> so now, now, I, now I can learn Tai Chi without being doing it in the park with, like, with everyone watching. Tai Chi is the one where you pretend like you're holding a magical orb, kind of, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Is that the one? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like doing the Hadouken uh, Street Fighter move. Yeah, without an actual glowing blue ball, and then you imprison someone in your labyrinth. It's, it's all there. Like yeah. you can learn every single one of these skills. And again, we have this great deal where you can get a 14-day unlimited access trial. So anything that you're interested in in their library, you can give it a shot. You can watch it or listen to it or both. If you go Nothing to the great to courses, lose. yeah, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com/slash/probably. And again, 14 days, zero risk. And uh, a world of knowledge to gain. So that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. There's a story I wanted to do, but it's behind a new scientist paywall. But there's a whole story. Okay, so before we recorded, I looked on New Scientist, and there's a story that says 
Uh, the headline is, Physicist finally worked out why ice is slippery after 150 years. <laughs> I presume that means like they worked it out under, after 150 years rather than why ice after 150 years is slippery. Correct, correct. <laughs> it was a little ambiguous. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, I'll see if it's written up anywhere else. And I just Google the name. And the only, the only other link I could find, I, I'm pretty sure this website isn't doing its own original research. Because firstly, it references back to the uh, New Scientist story. This is newstechnologyworld.com. And <laughs> the wording is, Physicists lastly labored out why ice is slippery after 150 years. I think this is written it's by a computer. Weird translation, yeah. I yeah, think a computer wrote this. And also, if you look at... I don't know if you have the same stories in the sidebar that I do, if you click on the link. But one of them is... Uh, are you washing your intercourse toys sufficient? Mm, okay. That's a good... Are, are you? <laughs> are you washing your intercourse toys sufficient? I don't think it's, mine is ever sufficient. <laughs> so, there we go. I, I, we'll never know. We'll never know what the ice story is. Well, is there... There's an article on, on uh, live science or live science, depending on how I like to say it, um, about this, but it's from 2018. So, could this yeah. be from a different era of understanding why ice is slippery? I Should think it must be, because this is a new down. story on New Scientist. Right. It's not called Two Years Old Scientist. No. No, of course. I have to say, of all the podcasts I've done, <laughs> I might have done over 100. Mm -hmm. Never had as much reading of the internet on the website, on the podcast, during the actual interview. Oh, strap great, in. Huh? There's more reading yeah. where that came from. I love it. I love it. It's just like, tune in, and a young comedian, well, he won't riff. He will just read from the internet. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's riffing it. as well. No, that's true. That is true. Okay, keep going. But but no no more. I think now we're going to go into the uh, speed round where we just read and you stay silent. Yeah. I got it. I'm, could, I, I for the rest of the show, much? but you do have to still stay on the line. I love it. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. You don't have to stay silent. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to learn about transparent wood that listener Ooh. Paul Muxworthy sent in? I'm very interested in transparent wood. You know how you're always complaining about how wood is opaque? Yeah. If it were just transparent, it would be perfect, but it, it's... Yeah, opacity. that's why people have to mount mirrors into wood. <laughs> that's true. So, scientists... Have, you see right through it, yeah. Uh, scientists have developed a transparent wood that is stronger and lighter than glass. And mm. this is in the, on the cbc.ca website in their quirks and quarks section. Oof. Yeah. I don't know whether this comes under quirks or quarks. I'm going to guess this is a quirks story. Sure. But researchers at the University of Maryland have turned ordinary sheets of wood into transparent material that is nearly as clear as glass, but stronger and with better insulating properties, which could become an energy-efficient building material in the future. So wood's made of two basic ingredients, oh. cellulose, which are tiny fibers, and yeah. lig lignin, which bonds those fibers together to give it strength. Uh-huh. So if you tear a paper towel in half and look closely on the edges, you'll see the little cellulose fibers sticking up. And lignin is like a glue-like material that bonds the fibers together, a bit like the plastic resin in a fiberglass or carbon fiber. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the lignin also contains molecules called chromophores, which gives the wood its brown color and prevents light from passing through. Uh, early, but... Yeah. So lignin is your issue. Right. Like lignin is your big problem. Early blocking, the, blocking the light. Yeah. It's just fucking lignin. Um, early attempts to make transparent wood involved removing the lignin, 
but involved but that involved hazardous chemicals, high temperatures, and a lot of time, making the product expensive and somewhat brittle. The new technique is so cheap and easy it could literally be done in a backyard. Can you make uh, my fence? Andy, you have a backyard. Finally, I'm staring at some very opaque wood in said backyard that I wish were transparent. Yeah, give yeah. me a clear fence. I. So here's what you got to do. You got to start with a plank of wood. Okay. Uh, yeah, they started with a plank of wood like about a meter long and one millimeter thick. So that's it's quite a thi- quite a thin. thin. That's a thin plank of wood. Yeah. It's very thin, one millimeter. The scientists simply brushed on a solution of hydrogen peroxide using an ordinary paintbrush. Mm-hmm. Well, you can get that from the chemist. Yeah, the I gargle with I, that. Sometimes they gargle with that. So. All right. You, yeah. We'll spit it out onto some wood, and you could be achieving yeah. two different things. <laughs> when, when left in the sun or under a UV lamp for about an hour, the peroxide bleached out the brown chromophores but left the lignin intact so that ah. the wood turned white. Okay, so now you've got white wood. you got white wood. Yeah. All right, so that's step one. Step one's white wood. Yeah. Ne- next, they infused the wood with a tough transparent epoxy designed for marine use which filled in the spaces and pores in the wood and then hardened and yeah. that made the white wood transparent mm. wow that's interesting so, yeah so you I could have to brush on the okay okay so this makes sense you i said, can see a fact yeah i can see a fact. yeah to me the hard part of that is the one millimeter thick sure. piece of wood yeah, <laughs> to cut little... that yeah it's a, bit, it's a thin <laughs> you could probably go to like a wood yard and just yeah a lumber yard and just get them to can you shave this wood? I'd like a two by four. Oh, two inch by four inch? No, two millimeters <laughs> by four. <laughs> okay, let's try. Let's see what I can do. Uh, one by six? Yeah. One mil? Yeah. That's interesting. I could see that working. Can I loop back to something I was speaking about earlier? Yes. Please. Not about stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. But this is something I remember. From int- Remember I said I was in a class called Introduction to Physical Science? Yes. One of the things I learned in that class at South Plantation High School, was the glass, which we're now trying to replace with wood, was not a solid, but instead, and I'll never forget this state, this uh, description, a highly viscous liquid. Have you ever heard of that? I have, and but also, and the, I believe, because I, I was told the same thing at school. And now and, I heard that's wrong. Yeah, I, that, that's the, like at school, one of the things I was... I remember being told by our science teacher was, and if you look at an old church, yes, yeah, you'll the glass see that is the thicker is at the bottom, right? Exactly, and yeah. and what it probably turns out is that old glass making wasn't as uniform a process, so they'd end up with panes of glass that weren't quite equal thickness, oh, and I they see, just put the thick bit on the bottom for structural integrity. Oh, oh, yeah, I just so found- it's not slowly dripping down. According to Scientific American, it's neither a liquid or a solid, nor a solid. Okay. It's, an a, it's an amorphous solid, a state somewhere between those two states of matter. And uh, glass's liquid-like properties are not enough to explain the thicker-bottomed windows because glass atoms move too slowly for changes to be visible. But I remember hearing this also, Wayne. I'm not. But they are. But, but that does mean that this. again. I I I remember when I told somebody that, like at a bar. And they were like, you're an idiot. I go, I remember this state, I, highly viscous liquid. I mean, I, you know, that makes sense. So, And then they looked it up on their phone, <laughs> and I was wrong. I was like, <laughs> Damn. But, but, you were, you were, but you were right, but you were South also wrong. Plantation High again. But also, according to what Andy just read out, it is still, it is moving. It is still flowing, but Those, just at okay. such a glacial pace that it would never be enough to affect the, the thickness of church glass. 
how slow could it be? <laughs> all right, all right. It's all right. Stonehenge it. slow. We're talking. It's yeah. right, right, right. By all the right. way, are you guys watching Blown Away on Netflix? I don't even not. know what it is. I don't Gla- know what you're talking about. Glass blowing competition show. Which, oh, oh yeah. I have heard people talking about this. Those, those yeah. usually aren't my thing, but this, I don't, I, it, for one thing, it's just very soothing to watch. But the first episode of the new season, I highly recommend it, if only for the reveal. It's one of the funniest, um, one of these things is not like the other. When they show all 10 contestants work, there's one of them that is just. Uh, all right. I, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I will do that. <laughs> Almost at the level of that um, fresco that was redrawn <laughs> by that woman in Italy. Which, yeah. I, I do love that every time there's a new story like that now, about 10 different listeners will send me in. Like, have you seen it's this? The <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. I, I still think, I don't think comedy can get more perfect than that. Yeah, it's the, pretty. The, that or ba- the bad, the badly taxidermied. Um, bad taxidermy uh, wolf, as well. But it's lion. Yeah. Yeah. But the, it's, I think it's because it's entirely her attitude. It's the, it's the fact that she was so confused as to why people weren't grateful. It's a little bit like, to be honest, Artemis Ward, right? About being cockily wrong about something. Like, it's <laughs> being very uh, reliable. It is. And it, it, but it's just, it's just doing the worst thing with the best of intentions. Right, right. But then also <laughs> still thinking that you did the best thing. And, be, and, and weirdly, the kicker to that story being that tourism in that town increased markedly because people wanted to go and see the bad <laughs> Jesus fresco. I, and the they first actually, thing I'm doing when COVID's over is going it, it it actually increased, like it rejuvenated the finances of that town and that church. So she did do a good job. Yeah, and it wasn't even a famous thing she destroyed. So it didn't. No, it was. It wasn't like it. Yeah, it wasn't like a classic by one of the masters. It was a. It was just you know your average your average Jesus painting on a wall that got turned into something quite quite special. Yeah. Um, so this article says you can see a similar effect to the transparency of the wood by just. So, the way a paper towel goes translucent when it gets wet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I have seen that. So that's not clear. It's like you couldn't. Yeah, right. So yeah, it, it's it's not perfectly translucent. But if you've if you've got a white paper towel on a pattern surface and you drop some water on it, you will be able to see the pattern through it. No question. No mm-hmm. question. And so the epoxy in the wood does an even better job than uh, that than the light. So the light passes through the water when the paper towel is translucent. And that's what's happening. The water acts oh, so as a the conduit for the light. Right, so the epoxy becomes the water in this. Yeah, and it apparently does an even better job than water in a paper towel, allowing 90% of visible light to pass through. The result is a long piece of what looks like glass with the strength and flexibility of wood. Hmm. I hope that's the future. Yeah. That and would as be a, amazing. Because I'm, win- I'm tired of looking through highly viscous liquid. Uh, <laughs> I'm sick of it. Exactly. But it does say it could be used for building, but also questions why someone would want to live in a transparent house. But theoretically, it could be scaled up to larger. Right. And maybe this is one of those, oh, you could live in a glass house and still people could throw stones and it wouldn't be a problem. (laughs) It'd be fine. It's fine. Stone-proof glass house. (laughs) Exactly. But but it it would be more resistant to accidental breakage. The clear wood is lighter than glass with better insulating properties. So less energy yeah. probably to heat. Also less energy possibly to manufacture the clear woods because there are none of the high temperatures involved in melting glass. What about sound? Is it more of a sound buffer? Do they talk about that? Oh, I don't know. But it does say that many different types of woods from balsa to oak can be made transparent with this method. 
and it doesn't matter whether it's cut along the grain or against it. So if it's if it's yeah, so you could have transparent wooden walls made of this stuff. It could be load bearing glass. I know, but it just seems like like when I think of like a big plate glass window or something in front of a store, like that would be a big tree to get that kind of wa- maybe not, maybe not. Well, maybe it's, also I don't know whether. I mean, I think of big pieces of plywood, of course. Those yeah, would, or chipboard. Be... Like if it works for that, maybe. Oh, you mean because chipboard is they take the wood that's already been and sort of glue it together. Yeah, yeah I don't know yeah. whether. I don't know if that would work. Yeah. Um, I it is also. And again, as a you know, as a student of the history of comedy, it might yes. really—it's the history of stand-up. Get it right. What Sorry, is... yeah. So this isn't. So I think you'd be safe on the stand-up front because it's not really stand-up. The uh, the moving a pane of glass slowly across a road right. in the street. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, actually, to bring it back to the history of stand-up uh, more directly, is it Woody Allen who said, "If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny." Who's? Well, he who's... didn't say that, but oh. one of his characters okay. in the mo- in a movie did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, you know, there you have it. We've got like a glass-like thing that bends instead of breaks. Is this funny? Is this transparent wood inherently funny? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. That I can't tell you. By the way, we've, we've talked to, I don't know if you know Peter McGraw, the author of The Humor Code. No. I know that book, though. Oh, yeah. So What he, did he say? Well, he has his theories. I don't want to push them onto you, but I wonder if in the course of researching this or just in your career in comedy – if you have any grand universal theories of, of why things are funny in general. Oh. Is that too broad uh, of a question? Yeah, it's a little broad, and it's, I I mean, obviously, incongruity, and I, I find, you know, taking two des- separate things and putting together and drawing a connection to them is always, like, a great way to do it. Sometimes yeah. things that, a, a truth that's unsaid makes people laugh. But sometimes just, and Matt can speak to this, sometimes just reminiscing makes people laugh. Like I've seen a lot of comedians, and this goes way back as I've kind of studied these other comedians. Sometimes they just like mention things from their childhood. Right, right. Like, I don't know, blowing into a Nintendo cartridge, and people are like, ah, I did that, you know? So it's weird. It is weird, like a shared cultural experience. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, the same like room references any joke about the room and i i don't it is just oh you've noticed a thing that we've also noticed <laughs> yeah it's fun but, but it's you fun. said it i don't know i don't this might just so you know my book my history of stand-up book is not about Why? any sort of stand-up um like uh theory or any any of that stuff yeah, uh, it's the history you know Jimmy Carr wrote actually a pretty good book about jokes and stand-up where he goes into a lot of it and what's your take on modern comedy as in the most modern, like COVID? Uh, what do you think is going to happen in the coming years? How long until we are back to a semblance of normal comedy or do you think well, we never are? Well, this is in, in your question is stating that comedy is a normal thing that's always done the same way. And the point is, it's basically a live performance, but there mutates in many different ways. Right. So it's. Who knows? Who knows? I I write that at the end of my book. It's like, I don't know if live comedy is going to come back bigger because this seems like a pale doppelganger to what's actually, you know, or it might be like, oh, I like being able to stream a stand up show to the entire world from my bedroom Mm -hmm. and and people around the world love it. And they'll not only pay for that show, but they'll pay to do a an extra 15 minute meet and greet. 
with me online to right. go and get a digital picture taken. So have you done any Zoom shows or drive-in shows? Or of course, the... of course. I haven't done a drive-in show, but I have done z- multiple Zoom shows, yes. D- does it scratch the itch for you or not? Um, I, I'd be like to talk to Matt about... <laughs> not, not that I don't want to answer your question, but... It it's does its own extent. thing. It's its own thing. It's its own, like, yeah, it's not stand-up the way... It's not, like, in a club. No, it's not as good as in a club. Right. But I think there are... Th- performance skills to be learned doing zoom comedy what do you think matt yeah i i I, like it's i see it as stopping my muscles from atrophying oh yeah okay like a stopgap yeah like it's just it's keeping me able to do it so that when clubs do reopen i'm going to be able to and also just sort of keeping that bit of my sanity and so on that needs to be able to uh like like needs that satisfaction like i need to do it but i will say there's been you know there's something called face okay i'm gonna say like face fronting comedian front facing comedians that's it front facing comedians who were like they don't even work clubs they just sort of do little monologues into their phone straight and then send them out and they're doing fine so yeah they they were perfectly yeah can say it again they were perfectly set for a pandemic. Yeah. So they're like, oh, this is something that's uh, accelerated the the online part of comedy. Well, let, let's do this one one story about a, a group of oh. people or or creatures adapting and changing to the modern world. Uh, this is sent in by Rachel Carter. Uh, pigs can be trained to use computer joysticks, say researchers. Finally. Finally. You know how that's been an issue that we've all been worried about for so long. And studies found Certainly. pigs were able to move a cursor to hit a wall on a screen and earn a treat. Absolutely. So, yeah, they, they've long well, been pigs thought... are smart. Everyone, right? That's, that's yeah, common they, knowledge. Is that they're generally right? considered to be one of the smartest yeah, yeah. animals. So pigs perfect are... for eating. Perfect for eating. <laughs> so they've previously been found to be capable of a host of tasks, including solving multiple choice puzzles and learning commands like sit. Researchers in the U.S. though now say that they've trained. They've successfully trained four pigs to manipulate a joystick and control a cursor on a monitor. Professor Candace Crony of Purdue University, one of the co-authors, said, potentially there may be more pigs, more that pigs are capable of learning and understanding and responding to than we previously envisaged. So, Crony and co-author Dr. Sarah Boyson, writing in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, report how they use tasty treats to train their pigs to move the joysticks using their snouts while watching a computer screen. The researchers then presented the quartet with a video game in which the pigs had to use the joystick to maneuver a cursor until it collided with one of four wall-like structures on the screen. Upon collision, the game made a bloop sound and the pig right. received a treat. Yeah, It specifically says bloop in this Guardian article. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is just the next step of you ring the bell, you get the food. Yeah, right? exactly, but they, they are actually connecting... The right, there's a, there's a, it's more than just, well, still ring the bell is a physical activity that you have to figure out. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess so that when, they are making that connection now to moving that joystick and seeing so, the cursor move. To, yeah, so it's not, oh, that's wow. And the more successful the pig was, it says, the fewer the number of walls were presented in the game. So the, oh, t- wow. the team analyzed. It's like when I was playing Pong and you would make the paddle smaller. Oh, yeah. Time. It's more and more difficult. That's an old reference game. You were a successful pig, yes. <laughs> and, I don't know about that. <laughs> So they, they analyzed the last 50 trials by each pig on the three, two, and one wall scenarios in turn. 
determining how often the pig hits a target wall with, a, with their first cursor movement. The pigs reveal that Hamlet and Omelette, three month-old male Yorkshire pigs, were able to complete the task better than chance when presented with two walls or a single wall on the screen. But three walls, nah. Mm. And then, but then Hamlet, Hamlet and Omelette were cut from the experiment after 12 weeks of training because they'd grown too large to stand long enough to complete <laughs> sessions and they no longer fit within the constraints of the test pen, apparently. Wait, is that because they kept getting too many treats or just the normal? I think it's just normal pig growing. Normal, yeah. Omelette, that would be normal. Like his brother, he also was growing at that rate. Okay. Yeah, because it wasn't an issue for Ebony and Ivory to, uh, to a two-year-old male Panapinto micro pigs who had 15 months of training and testing. And they both did better than Chance when presented with three walls or one wall, but only Ivory did better than Chance in the two-wall condition. I don't understand how... There are different wall difficulties between the different yeah. breeds of pig. That's confusing. So wait, so ebony is not as good as ivory? No, ebony. I think ebony and uh oh yes, yes ivory. Ivory won that one, which uh, that's, that's that's an uncomfortable way around. That's uncomfortable in the in this era. <laughs> so the researchers say <laughs> that the pigs achieved the light level of success they did on a task. It was significantly outside their normal frame of reference is in itself remarkable and indicative of their behavioral and cognitive flexibility. Yep. And they said, yeah, encouragement from the pig's trainer seems as important as treats, if not more so, in spurring the animals on. Oh. You have to control for that. You got to have. Yeah, we got to control for the Equal amounts of training encouragement. It does say here, though, that they didn't do as well as as the monkeys. The pigs did well, but non-human primates like the rhesus monkeys beat them. The researchers say it could be down to differences in ability to grasp the concept of the game, but also could be their dexterity, their their sight. Their pigs were far-sighted, and they have to keep looking down and up at the task as a result of moving the joystick with their snout. Whereas, you know, the monkey can stay stay level on the screen. So they suggest maybe that touch screens rather than joysticks might prove valuable in further probing the porcine cognitive capabilities. <laughs> well done there. Oh, sorry, well done, sorry, Guardian, sorry. there with that little bit of writing. Well done, Nicola Davis. That made me laugh. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Guardian. That made me laugh. Um, uh, I, look. I'm always going to vote Simeon over porcine. Like, that's, uh, there's no way they're ever going to beat the monkeys if that's what they're hoping to do. You're yeah, just never I mean, going to... I Never mean, you just need to look at one video of a monkey riding a pig to know who where the power lies. Sure, yeah. It's <laughs> undeniable power engulf <laughs> right. there. Oh, my God. All right, guys, that was good. That was definitely good. I take back the reading the internet. Okay. It was very entertaining. Well, let an omelet outgrowing their pen because of too much Mountain Dew Code Red as well. You should have controlled for that. Well, that that does seem like a good time to wrap things up as well to pre- start to bring things to a close. But we should we should have another plug for like Wayne. Where can our listeners find you and also where your book is? Well, my book comes doesn't is not even released yet. This is uh, early. It comes out the Ides of March. A little nod to somebody named Billy Shakespeare. <laughs> and you, you can pre-order it though on certain websites, yes, like on Amazon or some other booksellers. So yes, you can do it on Amazon. You can pre-order it, and it'll be whisked to you electronically on the 15th and there's also going to be a paperback version and believe it or not recorded with this very microphone i'm using right now i'm going to be doing an audible version both audible and on audible well get get those pre-orders in because that way 
Yeah, you what? want the pre-order so you spike in the charts on day one. Oh, you do? Okay, well, so everyone... it doesn't matter. I'm not really... The, the charts isn't as interesting to me as telling this incredible story of this art form. That's, and we're in the middle of a... Who, know, who knows what's going to happen? But... It's definitely an inflection point. And it's yes, still yeah. In, in, the ski, in the grand scheme of things compared to other art forms, what a crazy thing to get to be alive in such a new one. Like, right. It's such a short amount of time to have been around. And also the, uh, the, the elements that make for a great stand-up club, and Matt, you may disagree with this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, and Andy is, as well from your stand-up days. Yeah. Which... Oh, oh and Andy as well. Yeah. Is inside... In a closed quarters, lots of packed room. Oh, yeah. People laughing out loud, expelling <laughs> whatever comes out of your mouth when you laugh. Everything that makes a comedy cl- a comedy room good or bad is the exact opposite of what you want now in COVID times. Or, or also... High or ceilings, exact... awful for comedy. Low yeah. ceilings, great. Low ceilings, <laughs> awful for transmission of diseases. Yes. Close exactly. to the stage, closely packed in together. <laughs> Great Wep- weapons, great gas masks. Obviously, yeah, exactly. the antithesis of comedy. Yeah. Right. So uh, the way I put it was more that all of these elements that make great comedy also make great ways to transmit aerial viruses. Yeah. <laughs> like they're the exact same list. Yep. It's, yep. it's it gonna really be a while. Is, everything that we while, hate, guys. everything that we normally run a mile from, like open air gigs. Like- right. Right, exactly. All the things that are the worst. We're like, bring it on, bring it on. That's so, I don't know. I mean, we were in the middle of a comedy boom, and wait, Andy, you did stand-up. Is what, did we do I mean, sets I don't together? Think that, I don't think that I've officially retired. It's just, it's been a minute. Um, I don't know if we ever did. I'm, I'm sure at some point. Oh, okay. I'm um, sorry. I apologize. No, don't, I apologize. listen, I don't take it as a, as a point of pride that i've ever done that so <laughs> right okay all right yeah no but everyone was wondering because we were in this comedy boom but which we were calling the internet comedy boom because it was bolstered by exactly what's happening right here podcasts yeah and that's the youtube one thing videos yeah and they, yeah all of this kind of bolstered suddenly you could tour and it would help you and twitter and your number of followers could get you booked Although so, less so these days, but yeah, Twitter at one time, sure. Yes, yeah. Twitter at one time definitely was a was a thing. But so, um, but so now I don't know. Are we in a post stand? Are we going to? Is this the start of a post stand up comedy world? Yeah, it's either podcasting or you got to do like an Andrew Schultz style thing. We just say it front facing. Yeah, stare down the camera and give a monologue. I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah. So who know, uh, Matt? What do you think? You, Matt, you want to just do stand-up in clubs. Is my yeah, I, I think it, it, it'll come back. There'll, there yeah. will be a desire for it. It will be a bit different. Some of the clubs that we used to play won't exist anymore. Some of the right. comics we used to gig with won't be doing it anymore. Uh, but I, I, think, I think there's, just judging by the way all the drive-in shows and things like that set out, and people will still go to Zoom shows, so like that, there is a desire to do that. And I think once things become safer and vaccines get rolled out and so on. I think there will be I, I think it's going to come back it'll be different you know every time there's been like a big thing happen it's taken a different form right. like global recessions change things and uh, well, I think there will be an interesting political angle to this because everything about mask wearing and just prevention of the spread of this has become so tribalized I think the people who will be fastest to get back into it are those who are 
Yeah. I, I know. I think it's going to be a kind of an alt-right comedy boom first before it's anything else. Which that's is that's a good point. That's <laughs> maybe a good point, not the they're best. Not, yeah, they're less anxious to be. Than, I mean, less worried about being in a crowded situation. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a great thing to see happen, but um, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah. I love it, guys. Thank you so much <laughs> for having you. me on well, this. Right. I'm at thank the, you for doing it. Oh, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. And at uh, at Fetterman on Twitter and. Yeah, so you know what it is. Yeah, have Fetterman on Twitter and look on your favorite bookseller for Wayne Fetterman's The History of Stand-Up from Mark Twain to to Dave Chappelle. And you can find us, as always, at probablyscience.com. That's also where we post up the show notes and stories and our links to Patreon and PayPal. Uh, At Probably Science is our Twitter, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Probablyscience at gmail.com is our email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you'd like us to cover. Uh, Wayne, thank you again for joining us. And You're welcome. Listeners, thank you for joining us from the other side of the machines. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Cool. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.